the teaching pastor here at Cornerstone and uh, as a part of uh, what I do here, uh, I work with a number of people here at the church, uh, including uh, those who you regularly see doing what I'm about to do, coming in and sharing God's word with us to kind of work out what God might be saying to us as a community. And this year we've been tracing this theme of being exiles. Uh, We've discovered that there's probably more going on around the theme of exile in the scripture than we might once have expected. And we're beginning uh, this morning a four-part look at the book of 1 Peter. Um, So I'm really excited to hear from the likes of Chris O and Graham over the coming months. But I want to sort of set the scene for us this morning. I'm, I'm excited about this. I, um, I think that was a great prayer, Andrew. Sometimes I think Christians are the Bible's worst enemy. Um, as much as... I mean, I hear atheists who interpret the Bible in the same bad way that Christians do. And um, sometimes I think we, we, we live with this book as though it's just a book and words are stuck on the page. But what it means uh, for God's word to be living is that it goes beyond words on a page. And actually, uh, as I look around the room, uh, you here, this community that God has formed and is forming, is testament to the life of the word of God. Uh, We've got a a, a few visitors from Wycliffe Bible Translators uh, this morning. We're really uh, glad to have you with us. But if uh, you were to talk to these guys as people who are involved in Bible translation, you'll realise that to get God's word from Hebrew or Aramaic and Greek into, um, I just came across the Hawaiian pigeon translation that Wycliffe did about uh, 20 years ago. It's brilliant if you, uh, if you have some time to look up the Hawaiian pigeon translation. You realise that it has to touch down in culture, right? So the reason why they translated the Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic into Hawaiian pigeon was that Jesus wants to live in and through people who speak Hawaiian pidgin, who have Hawaiian culture or Indigenous Australian culture or Cambodian culture. Thanks. Uh, uh, We had a bit of a a reminder of of what God's doing in in Cambodia from Sarah last week. That's very much a living thing. The Bible isn't locked in Scripture it always needs to be interpreted. It always needs to be translated. And it's translated through people like you, as well as some skilled Bible translators, but it's translated through your life. Um, That takes a lot of pressure off me this morning as someone who um, gets kind of paid to read the Bible and to try and work out what God might be saying through it to us because you guys have to go and read 1 Peter. So I'm trusting... (laughs) that in the coming weeks you're going to engage with this wonderful letter and try and work out what God is saying to you through it in your culture, in your place. So what we're looking at here in First Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter to the community of, of Christians that's emerging in that part of the world. Um, and you'll pick up just from the section that we're going to read this morning from chapter 1, that they are going through some tough stuff. 
Uh, it seems like some of them have even been kicked out of the Jewish community in Jerusalem and are actually moving into other parts of the world around because of that persecution. And they're establishing new Christian communities throughout the part of the world we might think of as Greece and Turkey, beyond um, first century Palestinian uh, Israel. And um, not only have they uh, been sort of persecuted and, and chased out by, uh, by, by their Jewish communities, because most of the very early Christians were, were Jews, we have historical record that they're beginning to come under the persecution of the Roman Empire. So it's a double whammy. Um, and as I read this, you'll see that Peter is trying to speak encouragement to a suffering people. Peter is trying to remind a group of people who seem powerless in the face of great religious machinery and the great imperial machinery of Rome that God has not forgotten them, that he has a plan and a purpose that he's going to work out through them, and they are indeed right in the very centre of it, even if they might feel abandoned. Why don't you have a look with me uh, if you've got your Bibles with you. It's alive, though. You can even access it in your phone these days. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, have memorized this passage, so you can just sort of see the little bouncing ball in your brain like on a karaoke machine. Uh, those especially spiritual people who know this off by heart. First Peter. Peter, I, Peter, am an apostle on assignment by Jesus the Messiah, writing to you God's chosen people, people exiles scattered to the four winds. You can see why this fits into our exile series already, can't you? Not one is missing, Peter's saying in this letter. Not one of you is forgotten. God the Father has his eye on each of you and has determined by the work of the Holy Spirit to keep you obedient through the sacrifice of Jesus. May everything good from God be yours. And what a God we have. And how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have been given a brand new life. And we have everything to live for, including the great future of eternal life. And that future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. The day is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and whole. I know how great this makes you feel, even though you have had to put up with every kind of aggravation and persecution in the meantime. Pure gold put in the fire comes out of the fire, proved pure. Genuine faith put through this suffering comes out of that suffering, proved genuine. When Jesus wraps all this up, it's your faith, not your gold, that God will have on display as evidence of his victory. You never saw him, yet you love him. You still don't see him, yet you trust him with laughter and singing. Because you kept believing, you'll get what you're looking forward to. Total salvation will be yours. 
The prophets who told us that this was coming asked a lot of questions about this gift of life that God was preparing. The Messiah's spirit let them in on some of it, that the Messiah would experience suffering followed by glory. The prophets clamoured to know who and when. All they were told was that they were serving you. You, who by orders from heaven have now heard for yourselves through the Holy Spirit the message of those prophecies fulfilled. Do you realise how fortunate you are? Angels would have given anything to be in on this plan, to be where you are. So, roll up your sleeves, put your mind in gear, be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives again. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then, but you do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life that is shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. As God said, I am holy, you be holy too. I've got a seven-year-old boy in uh, my house at the moment, and um, he is just sort of opening up, blossoming to Star Wars. Uh, it's Star Wars this and Star Wars that at the moment. To quote First Peter, because he hasn't actually even seen the movies, though he has not seen them, he has loved them. <laughs> And so uh, he's telling us all about these characters in a film that he hasn't seen. Dad, did you know Wookiees do this? And Dad, did you know that Anakin... Well, is that a spoiler? It, you, we all know that Anakin Vader became Darth Vader, right? The, the leader of the evil... Oh, sorry. Uh, so his imagination's being fired by the Star Wars galaxy. We've got books, even if we don't have uh, the movies playing for him just yet. And... Um, if there was one sort of symbol or image from Star Wars that kind of portrays the evilness of the Empire, uh, it would have to be this, the Death Star. It's this amazing sort of structure, piece of technology, weapon that can destroy whole planets. I don't know uh, for you, because you're probably uh, graduated past the seven-year-old boy stage, what the sort of preeminent symbol of an evil empire would be? Maybe it still is the Death Star. Maybe it's the tower and the all-seeing eye of Sauron. Maybe if you're a little more attuned to this life and history, you might think of the swastika or of the hammer and the sickle. Um, Whatever it is uh, for you, we have this kind of, kind of archetypal reality that transcends culture, that sometimes power goes wrong. As is commonly said, uh, absolute uh, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. The history of humanity is a history of the building of these great empires that inevitably go wrong and then the collapse of them and a cycle of one after the other. For you, it might be uh, just 
a sort of awakening realisation that the all-seeing eye of Sauron is in your pocket or uh, on your mantle with your uh, Amazon sort of device or your Google Home. Has anyone had the freaky experience of realising that Google knows too much about you recently? Uh, did you know that if you're pregnant, Google knows before your mother does these days? Because Google sees all. I'll let you decide uh, whether that beautiful little four-dot sequence uh, is your uh, symbol for evil empire, uh, something to grapple with. When we go to the record of scripture, uh, there is one symbol for evil empire that looms over the whole narrative from Genesis to Revelation, and it's this the Tower of Babel. Now, in the very early part of Scripture, there are these stories that tell God's people what is going on in creation, what is going on in the hearts of humanity, what is going on in the relationship between creation, human beings, and God. And so there are these stories that are incredibly shaping for our understanding exactly what is happening at any given moment. You probably know about Adam and Eve and how sin came into the world. You might also know the story of how the first murder occurred when one brother killed the next. You might know the the story of how God seemed to kind of create the world again out of the chaos of the flood, how all of creation was saved through the faithfulness and obedience of one man, Noah, and his family. And you may have come across this strange story of a tower that builds its way up through human endeavour. To heaven. You can find this story in Genesis chapter 11, and I'm just going to read a segment of it here for you this morning. It says in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 11, at one time the whole earth spoke the same language. It so happened that as they moved out of the east, human beings that is, they came upon a plain in the land of Babylonia. Your translations might say Sheena. Uh, they both work there. And they settled down. They said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and fire them well. They used brick for stone and tar for mortar. They said then, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches heaven. Let us make ourselves famous so we won't be scattered here and there across the earth. So what we're reading about here is the development of a city in ancient Mesopotamia. And um, they're using what was then cutting edge technology, fired bricks, to build at the heart of this city a monument, a symbol of their endeavor as human beings, a great tower. Um, and this Tower has become the symbol of human arrogance and rebellion. Um, and what we read here in Genesis chapter 11 isn't just the sort of uh, origin story of Israel's great nemesis, the Babylonian Empire, but to a certain extent it's the origin story of every evil empire in history. And Israel knew a lot about evil empires. Uh, 
and exile. Uh, from the slavery sort of situation that the Hebrews experienced in Egypt to the constant threat of enemies throughout the period of their monarchy, um, where both kings from the north and south uh, became sort of vassals to Mesopotamian power, to conquest of Israel by the Assyrians in the 8th century, to conquest of Judah in the south by the Babylonians in the 6th century, and then Israel's subsequent existence under Persian dominance, Greek dominance, Roman rule. The picture of empire and its evil nature was alive and real for God's chosen nation, Israel. So we see here a symbol of empire, and we see um, a symbol of the way that feats of human endeavour that do not include God's presence at the centre are rebellious and inevitably evil. This is kind of like a great what not to do story, a picture of what it looks like when everything goes wrong in human culture. As much as uh, the Bible tells stories like this of humans sort of setting themselves against God, you can also read through the Bible that God, in a sense, sets himself against this aspect of human culture. And the empires uh, that develop out of this aspect of human culture. You might know the story um, of the Hebrews who were to become the nation of Israel being liberated by God from slavery in Egypt domination by a great empire coming out into freedom and God revealing to them that he has a plan for them to live in a way that is quite different from the people around them with values that are quite different from the values that they might find in the nations and the empires around them with gods that are quite different from the God who he shows himself to be to them. Where worldly empires are built on greed and their gods are greedy, the God who liberates the Hebrews from Egypt shows himself to be generous. And in fact, the plan for living that he gives to the Hebrews, what they would call the law, in, enshrines generosity. In fact, it would be impossible for Israel, if they were obedient to the law, to build the kind of tower that we read about the Babylonians or the proto-Babylonians building. Because if one person was to try and raise themselves up, there is a law in God's plan for living that he gives to the Hebrews that sort of resets the cycle. So one family, one individual can't become so wealthy that everyone else becomes kind of fodder for the empire that they build. Every 50 years, the system resets and people get their traditional lands and their property back. The poor can't be exploited for great feats of engineering like this because God has 
enshrined in the law that there should always be provision for them outside of slavery. And you can see how this sort of presents itself as a kind of zag to the zig of history. The Hebrews are enslaved by a great empire. They're making bricks to build that empire. And God comes along and says, the suffering that comes from that, the way that it puts one type of person over another type of person. It's not my plan. It's not who I am. It's not how a people who are going to be identified with me will operate. Where the gods of the empires and the nations around Israel are warring and bloodthirsty and their cultures follow after that, where the towers of their empires are built on the deaths of many slaves, the God of the Bible zags against that zig. He says, you're not going to be like the people around you if you're going to be like me. You're not going to build empires that have towers at the centre of them like the people around you if you're going to be my people. The Bible has a word for this way that God zags to the empires of this world's zig. And you might have seen it flash up on the screen before, but it's holy. And if you were to look at what this word means, kind of etymologically, break it down to its most simple description, it kind of means set apart. God's holiness in Scripture is almost, I think, his defining characteristic. The holiness of God is a term that is used in the Bible to describe both his goodness and his power. It is completely unique, uh, this kind of powerful, all-powerful and all-good quality of God. And it paints a picture of, of these, these things radiating out of God like a kind of energy. In fact, if you're familiar with the scripture at all, you'll know that this quality of God um, is so strong that it can actually be quite dangerous to approach. Some people have seen it useful um, and helpful to think about this quality of God, his holiness, uh, as a bit like the energy of the sun. Um, so the sun is so bright and powerful that it sends light and energy to the whole of our solar system. And if you live here on Earth, uh, you'll know that it's a good thing that we have a sun in our solar system, that we get its heat, that we get its energy. But you'll know that were the Earth just a little bit closer to the sun than it is, then things start to get problematic, right? You can have too much of that good thing. There's a safe amount of the goodness of the sun that you can have. In, in a similar way, that there's a safe amount of, to the holiness of God that you can encounter. And one example you might be able to think of is when Moses first encounters God's presence in a burning bush. As Moses approaches that bush, uh, God tells Moses to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground and he actually warns him, do not come any closer. This is a picture of the intensity of this quality of God, his power.
power and his goodness, his holiness. And if you read the story of God choosing this slave class, liberating them out from under the heel of the Egyptian empire, taking them into the desert, giving them the promise of their own country, giving them a way to live that brings justice, peace and order, that reflects the character of the nature of God, you will know that many times through the scripture, God says, make yourselves holy for I am holy. Live this way and you will participate in my holiness. You will be a sign of my holiness. Another place where we find a picture of this quality of God is in Israel's temple. Once those slaves have been led into a land that God gives them and they establish themselves as a nation, they build at their centre not a tower but a temple, a home for the presence of God in their midst. And if you know about this temple, you'll know that at its very centre was a room called the Holy of Holies. Um, And this was where God himself resided in their midst. Because the Israelites, and especially the priests that worked in that temple, um, had to follow... Uh, orders to stay um, kind of pure enough to be as close to God's goodness as they could. Um, They had to kind of not only live uh, in a moral way, but there was this idea of like ritual purity as well. Um, There were these rituals that the Israelites had to follow in order to stay pure like hundreds of laws and rituals. You might have some insight if you've read um, the first five books of the Bible. These things included such uh, commandments as to stay away from dead animals, to avoid certain foods and certain bodily fluids. And while becoming ritually impure for the people of Israel was never defined as being sinful, the problem was for the Israelites, that they were not able to exist within such close proximity to God's holiness if they were ritually impure. God, unlike the gods of the empires and nations around them who were bloodthirsty, who, who, who built on human endeavour and the violence that comes with it, God chose life so deeply that in uh, those ritual laws there were things that pointed to his choice for life. So one couldn't approach the temple uh, if one had touched a dead thing. Um, It's a bit weird too, but uh, the whole menstruation thing was about that. It was a symbolic way of saying the very fact that an opportunity for life has been missed um, in a woman's cycle says that God uh, is grieved where life doesn't come to a certain extent. And so there were all these dimensions of Israel's life together where if they even had some sort of proximity to death, God would say, here's a little sign to remind you that I choose life. You can't come and worship me. You're not sinning, but you're ritually impure. A whole nation ordered in that way. Um, A holy God choosing a people to be holy, giving them a land to be holy in, and not 
with a tower at the centre, but a temple. Of course, we know um, that Israel struggled here. Not only did they struggle to be ritually pure, but they struggled to be morally pure. They struggled to keep their identity as God's holy people. Though they were almost obsessive at times about their ritual purity, they consistently failed to align themselves with the character of God, with his goodness. And in uh, this, the Bible tells us that they ended up acting like the people of the nations around them. They, in fact, at times ended up becoming the kind of empire that God was trying to liberate humanity from, that God was trying to show uh, was corrupt, that there was another way to live. They acted like the nations around them and the empires constantly threatening to overrun them. They were greedy and they lived in ways that led to death and not to life. They inevitably fell into the worship of gods that reflected these values. And so as we've discussed many times this year and probably uh, across your life if you've engaged with scripture, they came under judgment and they're now not so holy land Uh, was overrun. Their not-so-holy city, with its temple at the centre of it, was ransacked, and these not-so-holy people were led into exile and captivity, uh, in the case most um, sort of prominently in Scripture by the Babylonian Empire. Ripped away from the promises of God, it would seem, and taken into captivity and exile, ultimately to return to where the story starts, to return to this picture of where it all goes wrong for human beings time after time. They find themselves back in Babylon, back in the shadow of an evil empire. Not just any empire, but the evil empire. One of the things that God would do, even in these troubling times, was to speak to people through individuals that he chose. And at the time of the exile, there was a peculiar figure, really, if you read about him, named Ezekiel. We've talked a bit about Jeremiah, another prophet who was actually in uh, the area of Jerusalem when uh, the exile began, when Babylon came in and sort of wrenched God's people from the land that he had given them. Um, Unlike Jeremiah, Ezekiel is in the belly of the beast. Like Jonah in the belly of the beast, Ezekiel is there in Babylon. And uh, he does all sorts of creative, weird sort of art with his lived body uh, to, to communicate the messages that God gives him. If you read the record of this ministry that God put on Ezekiel's life in the book that's named after him, uh, you come to this section in chapter 8 where Ezekiel talks about God sort of catching him up the Spirit of God catching him up and almost sort of teleporting him back to the land that he and his people dream about as exiles in Babylon, back to Judah and Jerusalem. And he seems to come in to the city. And as he gets closer, he can tell that something's wrong. 
he gets closer and closer to the temple and things seem a bit iffy to him. It says in verse 7 of chapter 8, Ezekiel speaking of the Spirit of God who transports him from Babylon to Jerusalem. Then he brought me to the entrance he brought me to the entrance to the court of the temple. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He, the Spirit of God, said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and I saw a doorway there. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things that they are doing there in the temple. So I went in to the temple you'll have some understanding that ordinary people didn't just get to go into the temple. You had to be a priest to go into the temple. So he's kind of seeing behind the veil here a little bit. He goes into the temple and it says in verse 10, he was shocked. I went in and I looked and I saw betrayed all over the walls of the temple, all kinds of crawling things, detestable creatures and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. He's transported back to the place that he longs for. He's transported back to that house for the presence of God in the midst of his people. And he sees there, it says, if you read the chapter, the leaders of the nation, the priests, instead of serving the altar of the living God, all serving their own idols, sending prayers and offerings up to the individual gods that they have. The temple has become completely corrupt. Imagine the horror that thing that he was longing to return to, that thing that he imagined that God would soon deliver his people back to, turned over to idolatry and wickedness, greed, envy, slander, the qualities of the empires that God had called them out of. You've probably picked up, if you've been travelling with us at all this year, that we believe here at Cornerstone that God has a message for us in this time and this place that resonates with these exile stories. I think it's the case that we increasingly in this moment, if we are people who submit our lives to Jesus, are finding that the powers that be are not aligned with the God whom we worship. The shocking application of this story to our moment would be to think, were we to dig our way into the holy of holies of our kind of cultural religion, what would be the idols we would find there? And I think I want to give that to you as a bit of a homework, really. If you think about the evil empire beyond the kingdom of God in this world, are there idols worshipped out there that could find their way into the temple of God? Could it be things like an emphasis on personal freedom above all else, above any kind of communal or joint operation that God could be calling us to as his people? 
Could it be the pursuit of personal pleasure above the plans of God for his people? Could it be a sort of unhealthy nationalism where we might mistakenly imagine that God is more on our side as Australians than he is on the side of Indonesians or Iraqis or Syrians or Cambodians? What might the idols of empire be that could find themselves into the holy place of God's temple for us if we are exiles? If you read on in Ezekiel, you'll come to chapter 10 where perhaps even more horrible than finding these detestable things in God's temple, Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple in Jerusalem. This place on earth that is to house his presence amongst humanity being vacated by God and says God went up as though through the ceiling of the temple almost seeming to pause there. Ezekiel utterly crushed promises of God truly gone perhaps the activity of God the presence of God in the world perhaps gone forever there's some tough chapters after this if you read the book of Ezekiel but eventually the next couple of chapters you find that the presence of God moves east with Ezekiel as he returns to captivity in Babylon from this amazing sort of teleportation that God's taken him through. And the Spirit of God says, I am with the exiles to protect them, to continue to choose them, though they have not land or temple, to presence myself amongst them. In the shadow of the tower of that evil empire, the presence of God living with these broken people wrenched away from their dreams, not sure whether they have the future that God has once called them to. Ezekiel sees a vision of the temple in his time, a useless building, another construct of human hands, empty of the presence of God. And yet the presence of God follows him into captivity, into exile, into the shadow of the Tower of Babel. If you keep reading Ezekiel, you come to this wonderful chapter in uh, 47, where God gives Ezekiel a picture of the future. And it's a picture of the temple. But I would sort of warn us about reading this as being a reference to the physical temple too directly, because something is happening at the temple that never physically happened uh, out of the temple of Jerusalem. Ezekiel sees streams of living water 
flowing out of the temple, down towards the desert, out towards the east. And in these streams, which become uh, a flowing river, uh, is all sorts of life, fish, Uh, People are bathing, singing, rejoicing on either sides of this river that's flowing into the desert out of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Fruit trees and all sorts of abundance. And God is promising Ezekiel that his blessing and his presence will once again come to the earth. It's a a picture that you might recognise actually from the very last book of the Bible that talks about the ultimate destiny of the world, that there will be living waters that flow from the temple of God and from his presence that will bring life and joy and peace and prosperity to the whole earth. You might also recognise that Jesus uses this language. In the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John, um, it talks about Jesus being in Jerusalem not long before the religious system of his time and the great imperial might of Rome crush his body. And he's talking to his disciples. It says in verse 37, On the last and greatest day of the festival... Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant that the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. I'm going to invite the band to come uh, up on stage and lead us in one more song before we close out. But here we have Jesus speaking about those same living waters that Ezekiel saw. And I want to suggest to you this morning, perhaps you're keeping an eye on what's happening in Israel. There are many who imagine that the rebuilding of the physical temple there is going to mean something particularly significant. But I want to suggest for you this morning that the future that Ezekiel saw is a future where God's life is flowing out of his living temple. A friend of mine did this work of art. We've got um, it framed in, in our house and it's called the fire temple and it's a picture of Mary with Jesus in her womb and Christians have wondered at this prospect that God could make his home in a human being that Mary could receive this incomparable grace that she could become like a temple for the son of God Indeed, for God himself, the tradition of the church calls Mary the fire temple, the Theotokos, the mother and bearer of God. What's wonderful about this picture, actually, though none of us, apart from Mary, will ever receive it in quite that expression, is that this is actually God's promise for all who would depend on Jesus, that through the Holy Spirit, 
you would become his presence in the world. You would become his temple. And so more significant than whether there's a building on a hill in Jerusalem sometime in the next couple hundred years is the fact that God is living and dwelling in you. I look around the room now and I know that God is living and dwelling in you. And there are deserts in this world that need water. Water that can only come from the presence of God presence of God in you should you depend on Jesus the presence of God that will flow out of your belly that will bring life there will be children dancing laughing, fish swimming, trees growing up would you stand with me for a moment I'm going to close now but I want to take you back to just the very end of this passage from Peter I believe that Peter got this. And I think Chris Owen and Graham are kind of going to take us there in the next couple of weeks. There is a temple. Look around. You're looking at it. You're looking at it so though you stand in the shadow of the towers of empire, roll up your sleeves, put your mind in gear, be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of the evil empire doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then, but you do now as obedient children. Let yourselves be pulled into a way of life that is shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God says, I am holy. You, my people, chosen exiles, you be holy. You be the temple in the shadow of the tower. We're going to sing, but I just want to give us a moment. Who here needs that living water? Who here wants to take a moment to invite again the life of God into your being? Think about the deserts of your life, the people who are in need of that. God would choose you. Though you stand in the shadow of principalities and powers, forces which seem out of your control, God would choose you. If you see someone with their hand near you, I wonder if you just place your hand on them. And let's pray as we sing. God, make us your temple. Holy Spirit, live in us. Bring your abundant life out of us. We trust you, Jesus. We want you to live with us. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone,